0: This morning going to spend a little bit of time in prayer and one of the big praise points for us as a church this week is if you're on the prayer chain you will have known we've been praying for uh, Graham Martin this week who was uh, in Papua New Guinea uh, visiting the churches and uh, working through getting the, uh, the Gospel of John translated and at one point it was doubtful whether he would be able to get home because of the transport. Well he's here today, he made it home and we praise God for that. So I think... Uh, The next mission spot, you're going to be sharing, is that right, Graham? The next mission spot, I think you're sharing a bit of that journey, at some point anyway. So praise God uh, that uh, Graham has made it home. Uh, We also want to continue to pray for those in our church who are unwell at the moment. We have quite a few people in our church, as we've said the last couple of weeks, who are walking the cancer journey, and we want to be praying uh, for them. As I'm praying, I'm going to leave a bit of time open in the prayer for you to bring to to the Lord, names of people in your family who don't as yet know the Lord Jesus, when you can, in the quietness of your own heart, bring their name to the Lord and and just seek his heart for them. We're going to close our prayer time with what we call as a church our crafted prayer, which is a prayer that we wrote some years ago as a church that really expresses our desire to follow Jesus well and to trust him, that uh, he's got this, he's got the future worked out, and we want to walk in that plan that he has for us as a church. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of those words that the God who is holy, 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 you have made yourself known to us. Thank you that you most profoundly made yourself known to us in Jesus. We, it is beyond our understanding or comprehension that the God of the universe should care for us. And we are just so profoundly grateful that you give us the opportunity to pray and not like some other religions where they are told the exact words to pray, but that we can come and just share, talk with you about what's on our heart. And even when we don't know what to pray, what to say, your scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Thank you that you are a God who loves us and who cares for us as our Heavenly Father. Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you that though it looked to human circumstances, pretty unknown how Graham would get home this week. That you opened the doors, you did what you do, you made a way. We thank you that you declare in your word that you will provide for us everything we need. And we just see that worked out time and time again. And we're sorry for the times we doubt and we worry and we stress and we fret when you are the God who knows the beginning from the end. Oh Father, would you help us to rest in that knowledge, to rest in your sovereignty and your power, to know that we don't have to have all the answers but to walk in the simple faith of a child as we read earlier this morning. Father, we pray for our loved ones who are going through journeys of cancer and illness at the moment, particularly those in our congregation who are ill. Father, we thank you that you are no less with them in illness than you are in health. We pray that they would know your strengthening power at the moment, that they would know your healing, that they would know your presence with them. And Lord, beyond praying for them, when you bring their names to our mind, would you move us to go beyond praying, And to make that phone call or to send that text or to go around with that meal, to be your hands and feet in this community. Father, we pray for our missionaries around the world and those living and sharing the gospel in parts of the world where it is a crime to share the love of Jesus. We stand with them in prayer, but Father, we pray that you would give us opportunity to advocate for them where we can. Make us generous-hearted people, we pray, that we can share the love of Jesus. And we pray that especially for those in our family and our friends who don't know you, our heart is for them to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, that they would have the life that is in Jesus. And so we bring their names to you this morning. Father, for our church meeting this morning, we we declare... And we confess that this is not a democracy. This is a theocracy. We don't want to express our will. We want to express yours. And we believe your word that says "Where two or three of the gathered in your name, there you are also. So we believe you are here this morning. We believe you will be in the church meeting. And we believe, Father, that you will direct our feet. Oh, Father, we pray that everything that is done in this place would be to your glory. We pray for more people to come to know Jesus. We pray for whole families to come to know the love and the truth and the grace of Jesus. We pray for households and streets in this community to hear the name of Jesus and for whole streets to know the name of Jesus through the testimony of people who just love him. And so, Father, we're praying that as we open your word this morning, you will speak to your people. Lord, may they not be my words, but yours. Father, I pray that this morning I'd simply be a mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit to speak to your people. And we continue to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, we humbly thank you for all that you have done in and through Forest Lake Baptist Church. Make us a church where we look at people with the eyes of Jesus, where we serve people with the hands of Jesus, where we speak to people with the words of Jesus and we listen to people with the heart of Jesus to show them that every person is important to God. We desire to see a great tide of multiplication, of more disciples in your kingdom, of more congregations planted, and of more people trained and released into ministry in your church and your world. We believe you will equip and resource us and do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Lead us to the locations from where you want us to minister in a way that all the glory will go to you. We praise and thank you for what you're going to do, and we're excited at the prospect of your Holy Spirit moving in this community. We ask these things in and through the name of Jesus, knowing you're a God who hears and who responds to your people. Amen. I love Dedication Sundays because it reminds me of when I had all my kids dedicated. We've got a picture here of all my four kids around the time they were dedicated. Yes, they are in state of origin Jersey. The one Jersey has done all four Have we got any New South Welshman here today. Doesn't it feel good to win one game? Imagine how good it feels for us eleven series out of the last twelve. One day you well no, you won't get there, but there's something special about holding a baby and I you know, when I before we had kids, I honestly wondered and some of you if you're honest will admit this too, particularly guys, I think did I have the capacity to love a child? Did I, could I love a child the way a child needs to be loved? And then the moment each of those four kids was born, something welled up inside me that I had never experienced before. I can remember when Chloe was born, and I soon learned that birth, real birth is not the way they make it look on the TV. When the doctor walks into the room in gumboots, It's like, what do you know that I don't know in my sandals? (laughs) There is something raw about that moment when in birth, and Catherine's in this other room watching the TV going, where are you going with this, Mark? (laughs) Something raw when you hold that little baby and you say, this is a miracle. There is no other word for it. When we were going through antenatal classes, my dad, who's here today, took me aside one night, we used to go back to their place after the antenatal classes and have a, a coffee with them and dad said to me, come here, I want to talk to you. I said, well, oh, And he said, what are you going to these antenatal classes for? And I said, well, so I know what happens when the baby's born. He goes, well, what do you need to know for? I said, well, I need to know what happens when at, at, in the birthing room and he said, you're not going to be in there, are you? That, that's not a place for men. Men don't do that. And I said, well, they do today, Dad. And afterwards, when I told him what the experience was like, he said, I wish the men of my generation were allowed to do that, to be there for that. There is something profound about that newborn baby, whether it's our own, whether we get to hold another baby, the life and the potential in a baby's face. I have never yet been able to do a dedication on a dedication Sunday here where I've not been choking back tears because I look in the face of little Howie this morning and I just see potential. The danger is, and this is a real danger for us, when we make our children the idols themselves. When the child, we look into that child's face and we become so enamoured by them and so in love with them, and so want to make sure their life is great and full and happy, that the child themselves becomes God. And our child's happiness actually becomes the key goal for us. And our child's fulfillment becomes all that my life is now about. And, and, and are they doing okay? Are they, are they okay? Are they, are they happy? And if they're not happy, well, I've got to change what I'm doing in life. And you know, if my kid's not happy at church, well, then we won't do church. Or if my kid's not happy sitting down with the Bible, well, we won't do the Bible. Or whatever it is, we, we become so enamored by our kids that they actually become God in our home. And so often at dedications, the passage we're going to read today is read, and the focus comes on the child. Whereas the focus in this passage is not on the child, the focus is on the God who made the child. The best way to be great parents and a great church towards this amazing group of little kids that God has entrusted to us, and let's be clear, this is a trust that God has given us as a church. The best way we can love these kids is to first and foremost love Jesus and let the rest follow. So last week we looked at the first part of Psalm 139, the first 12 verses. Today we're going to look at the second half. And it starts with this verse 13, which in fact, I've got to say it, is my wife's favourite verse in the Bible. These first two verses. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Isn't that beautiful? Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. But if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. You speak of, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, look, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In the first twelve verses of this uh, psalm, really what David was on about was how the largeness of God means that He sees everything, He knows us, He is with us, He guides us. The largeness of God. Now in this verse, it comes down to the smallness of God, the the ability of God to see the littlest of things. So He says, "For You created my inmost being." Literally, He is saying. You created my kidneys. You created the inner workings of my body. The bits that the doctors still don't understand. You know how they work. Because you made them God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. See, it would be easy when we read these verses, and particularly when we read, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, to think that the focus is on the baby or the person he's talking about, David, or you, or me, that I am the one who is fearfully, I'm the focus of this, but no, no, no. The praise goes to him because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There is something about the worldview of one, a person of faith, that we look at the world and instead of just saying, wow, we say, praise God. And some years ago, I got quite sick and I spent some time in hospital and I got I was in hospital for a month and every day I would see the neurosurgeon and he was one of the most dry people I've ever met. You would think he didn't have a personality. And then one day I said to him, tell me a bit about what's the latest in neuroscience? When you've been in hospital for a month, you are dying for conversation. So I asked a question I knew I wouldn't understand the answer to, but anyway. And all of a sudden this man who had always been dry and not really had much to say, he came alive. And he's telling me how the brain works, and I mean, he lost me after about a minute, but he kept talking, and he's saying how they think that this part of the brain, it it affects this, but then, so I had an abscess on this side of the brain, and when I had my seizure, they said, you will probably not be able to walk, you'll need to relearn how to walk. I got out of bed, they gave me a walker, I stood up and walked, praise God. But they said, this doesn't make sense to us, because what was affected was at the time my speech, and even today, when I get tired, I get a bit of a slur going. He couldn't understand why this part of the brain, which is meant to affect walking, affects speech. He said, the more we know about the brain, the more we realise we don't know. And he just became amazed and he was coming alive and it was like, after a while I'm, like, I'm kind of wishing I didn't ask the question now because I just want to go to sleep. But he's just going on and he's... But never, never did his conversation or mind turn to the God who made the brain. It is one thing to be amazed by the brain. It's another thing to be amazed by the God who could make the brain and design it and make it out of nothing. Contrast that to a guy that we met last year when Catherine and I went down to a conference in Sydney and we were picked up at the airport and taken to the conference uh, by this guy who was a fertility specialist. That's a gross conversation. But he was talking to us and he's a Christian guy. And so I asked him, tell me about your world. And he started to tell me about how even still science cannot work out, why this should even work. And he was becoming enamoured about, just like the neuroscientist, the neurosurgeon, he was becoming enamoured about talking to us about the, the achievements in science and what they understand. Even still, the more they know the more they realize they don't know. He said the same things. But then he said the one thing that was different to the first guy, which is, I don't know how anyone can look into the face of a newborn baby and not believe in God. There's the difference. See, a lot of people can read Psalm 139 and say, yes, kids are amazing, and then leave it at that. What faith does to our lives and our hearts is to say, yes, this child is amazing. Wow, what a God we have. Because... Science may work out how to clone. They haven't worked out how to make a baby out of nothing. God created us. There was no template for him to work off. There was no previous design that he modified. He said, I'm going to make humanity. And he did. He looked at at the vast expanse and said, I'm going to create a world. And he did. There is this... Moment that we need to have, where we look around the world and we look at people and we say, "This cannot be by accident." There, look at the person next to you. Really, seriously, I know it's awkward, but do it. There is no look at the diversity even in this room. I cannot believe. I'm, I cannot believe that this is some accident of primordial ooze creeping out of a swamp and turning into humanity. God did this. And the point of what this psalm is telling us is don't just look at the amazement of the world, but turn your eyes to the one who made it. And as we do, he says, I, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. He, God knows us, before we are even known, before there is even... I mean, just This has got to be the moment for, for us. If it isn't, read it again. Before we were even yet there to be known, God knew us. Think about that. Before one of our days had come to pass, all of our days were written in his book. how amazing is our God? And he says to us, come to me. David says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. And translators really struggle with this psalm in many ways because this psalm was originally written in ancient Hebrew and as we translate it into English, it is hard to translate certain words. But one of the things we've kind of fallen into the the gap of here with this psalm is when we read things like uh, how precious to me are your thoughts, a better way to translate that word precious is verse 17 is how obscure to me are you? In other words, not precious and lovely and give us a warm cuddle. It's I can't take it in. I just can't take it in it's too much. When I think about the nature of God, it's just too much. When I think that there is a God who holds every life in this building and in this world in his hand, that's too much for me. When I look at the mountains and I see their grandeur, to think that there is a God who said, mountains. When we see the space shuttle go into space and we have the Hubbard telescope exploring the stars and we think we are discovering them, we're not discovering them, we're just finding them. God already knew they were there. We're not making anything new. Even the stuff as humanity we make. I got to help make a deck yesterday. I'm feeling very proud and very sore today. But let's be honest, I didn't make anything. I didn't create that deck. We took materials that already existed and we put them together. God creates out of nothing. And this is our God. Governments can build armies, scientists can build space shuttles, people can build decks. God made everything. Let your mind be blown this morning. See, the the problem in day-to-day life, and the problem often with parenting, whatever it is, in just day-to-day life, we have our eyes like this, at the stuff of life. Have we we got what we need? Why won't that kid get their shoes on? It is not a difficult thing to do. Just get your shoes on, get your shoes on, get your shoes on, forget the shoes, just go. Whereas this psalm invites us, instead of just having our eyes down, to lift our hot eyes to the hills, whence cometh our help, and say, There is our God. The problems and the stuff of life, it falls into place when we look at the face of Jesus. But really, what amazes me in this psalm is this next part in verse 19. Most people don't want to talk about this next bit because it's such an anomaly out of this beautiful psalm called the crown of the psalms that he suddenly just launches into, if only God you would slay the wicked. I mean, why does he have to go and do that? We had such a nice psalm going. We were feeling warm and cuddly and happy and then he goes and does this. If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. You, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. What do you do with that? So many commentators want to say, well, see, if you have the picture of the glory of God, you'll, you'll hate blasphemy. And yeah, that's true. But I think what we're getting here is actually a picture into the heart of David. Is it not true that so often in our Christian lives, when we have those mountaintop experiences where we are riding high, we come crashing down? And we know from Scripture that one of the things about David was that he had an extreme temper. He could fire up. It's like he had a red beard. This is a fiery dude. And one of the, one of the ways we see that is if uh, you know Scripture, or even if you don't, back in First uh, Samuel, which records so much of David's life, we have this remarkable little passage of Scripture. In First Samuel chapter 23, we have this moment where God delivers David out of uh, being caught by his enemies. And he, he declares how he trusts God. And then in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, you can go read this for yourself if you like. He has the opportunity to slay King Saul. And God has already promised David, you will be king. And even the men around King David, who was not yet king, said, ha ha, here is your chance. God has promised you the kingdom and here is Saul. Slay him now and you be king. And David says, no, it's not in my hands to do that. I'll trust God with that. And he has this moment where he's trusting God, trusting God, and you think, this is David riding high. And then we get to chapter 25, and a dude named Nabal comes along. And Nabal has a whole bunch of sheep and a farm, basically, and David has been journeying. He's been defending Nabal from raiders and all the rest of it. And David sends a couple of his men to Nabal and says, hey, my men are hungry. Could you give us some food to eat? And Nabal says, forget it, champ. You're getting nothing. And this David, who has been riding high and walking with the Lord and declaring his faith and trust in the Lord, suddenly comes out with these words in verse 21. We've got them uh, uh, up on the screen, the next uh, slide. David, this man who would trust God, says this, I guarded everything that belonged to this man in the wilderness for nothing. He, uh, he was not missing anything, yet he pe- repaid me evil for good. May God punish me and do so severely if I let any of his males survive until morning. How do you do that? How do you go from one minute trusting God completely to the next minute saying, I'm going to wipe out every male in that camp? But we see that in David. David at the one moment could be riding high and the next minute, boom, boom, not only do we see it in David, but I think if we're honest, we will say we see it in ourselves. That we can be flying high and suddenly crash. I love the authenticity and the reality of scripture that says this is the, this is the life. We're not perfect. We need Jesus. We are full of inconsistencies and contradictions that on the one hand we can be joyful in the Lord and the next minute we can be worrying about money. One minute we can be trusting God with everything and the next minute we can be concerned about this or that or the other. And so I think that's why then David comes back in verse 23 to this. Search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When we realize that we are full of inconsistencies, that the ego rises up, it sends us running back to our loving God because He is the one we trust. And when we get it wrong, he doesn't say to us when we come back to him, you got it wrong, clear off, you're done. Like a father with his arms open, he embraces us back. And this verse when he says, search me God and know me, is a strange one because right back at the beginning of this psalm last week, verse 1 of Psalm 139 is, Lord, you have searched me and known me. So why on one hand does David say, you have searched me and you've known me and now he says, search me and know me? I think the answer is he wants God to show him about him. Show me, Lord, what I don't know about me. Show me those parts of me that need to be dealt with and rest. Search me, And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It reflects Psalm 26, one of my favourite Psalms, Psalm 26, verse 2 and 3, where it says, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind, for your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth. So The truth is, if we ask God to examine us and see if there is any offensive way in us, there will be some there. We're not perfect this side of glory. But God says, just come and rest in me and let me do that journey with you. Let the Holy Spirit do that work in us, And I mean, the moment we become a Christian is this moment, isn't it? When we, we realise by God's grace that I don't have it all together. I am a sinner. I need to be restored in relationship with God. And Jesus says, and I've paid the price for you. That's the moment we start the Christian journey. When we come to him in faith and say, yes, Lord, I want you to be my Lord and Saviour. And we start that journey. But it doesn't end there. Repentance is something that throughout the life of a Christian, we need to keep coming back to God. It's the rhythm of the Christian life. And someone sent me this wonderful poem this week, and I put it in the weekly email from St. Aidan of Ireland. Leave me alone with God as much as may be, as the tide draws the waters close in upon the shore, Make me an island set apart alone with you, God, holy to you. Then with the turning of the tide, prepare me to carry your presence to the busy world beyond, the world that rushes in on me, till the waters come again and fold me back to you. Is that not the rhythm of the Christian life? We spend time with God in quiet. We say, search me, Lord, and show me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And then we take that grace and joy to the world and return to him again. One of the things that used to just be a a hallmark of the Christian world, a a staple of the Christian diet, was quiet times. That practice of daily being in the rhythm and the discipline of times quietly being with God. And somewhere along the line, we we seem to have lost it in the Christian world, where we start to say, oh, that all sounds like a bunch of legalism to daily spend time with God. But I think we need it. That daily rhythm of life, where just like David says there, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The rhythm of being with God, going out, coming back. A friend of mine who's a counsellor said, one of the problems with technology is that the rhythms of life have all flattened out. And so once upon a time, when we went in the car or we went somewhere, that was a time for quiet. You couldn't be contacted in the car. Now we've got mobile phones. Now, if someone needs to or wants to contact, not even if they need to, if they want to contact us, our phone dings in the middle of the night and we can't help but check. Or we wake up and first thing in the morning, what has happened on Facebook? Some of you younger ones, Twitter or whatever it is, I don't care. And we get into these rhythms where instead of the rhythm being, start the day with God and soak in his word and spend time with him in prayer. We get up, we get onto Twitter. We get the day started, and we go to work, we come home, we eat, we go to sleep. Get a bit of Netflix, go to sleep. Where in the rhythms of our lives does God feature? And more and more as I look around and see my own life and, and talk to, to people in the church, I'm convinced more and more that one of the simplest things we need to bring, bring back as Christians is something as simple as daily quiet times. And maybe you don't have that rhythm in your life, and let me tell you, it is like going through a day without eating. It is the food of God. It is the milk and the drink that we need. And yet we think we can get through these days, and we think we can get through the the life without coming back to the source of life himself. And in the most recent NCLS study, For us as a church, let's be honest, for us as a church, even for the church uh, Australia-wide, this isn't a guilt trip, please don't hear that. Less than a third of Christians open their Bible daily. And yet God invites us, just as David does in this psalm, to sit quietly with God and let God speak into our lives. And then go out. How are the rhythms of your life? As parents and as family, kids can come to a point where they just dominate the rhythms of our lives. One of the dangers for Ben and Vanessa with little Howie, as for all young parents, is that children dominate the rhythms of life, they determine what our family does. And yes, I think what this psalm invites us to do is to say, hang on a sec. The most profound legacy I can pass on to the next generation is a life lived in intimacy with God. There was a guy in my church growing up, and I can't actually remember who it was. I have a feeling he's here today, but I haven't had a chance to check. And so all you are like, ooh, who's that? And he told, he told me a story once how growing up it was just such a rhythm of the, ha- the family home that every, da- every day was started around the Word of God. It, was, it became such a, a habit and a rhythm that at one point in his life he walked away from the Lord. And yet even in the season where he walked away from the Lord, can you believe this? He read the Bible every day and it was reading the Bible every day that brought him back to the Lord. Such a rhythm and habit had been formed in his heart that even when he wasn't walking with the Lord, he read his word. What is the legacy you are passing on? And this isn't just a parent's, friends. I want this church to be a place it doesn't just have me modelling to my kids a life that is lived in the rhythms of Jesus. I want you to model it to them as well. I want to model it to your kids. I want their kids to know it. My heart is to see generations impacted by the rhythms of walking with the Lord daily. Because I think what this psalm tells us is that when we do that, our eyes are lifted from the main mundane stuff of life and we once again come back to see the Jesus who loves us, who died on a cross for us and who invites us to walk with him in the way everlasting. This year as a church, our, our slogan, our motto is this, next, this last slide. We press on as we press in. This is what pressing in looks like that we press into Jesus daily and in the rhythms of life it just becomes a habit that we spend time with Jesus because that's the best legacy we can leave the next generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that though we get the rhythm so wrong sometimes, when we turn back, you are already there And though we might walk away from you and we might try to leave you, as we said last week, you never leave us. We thank you that the Christian life starts with turning to you and that you embrace us because of what Jesus did on the cross. We thank you that the rhythms of life are such that we just need to keep coming back. And I pray for each of us here today that we would know your love and that the priorities of life would be set well. And the legacy that we leave the next generation and the generation after that will be lives lived for Jesus. Our oh Lord, in the day-to-day habits and rhythms of life, help us to be intentional. Help us to be thoughtful. And to start each day in the words and prayer with the God who knows us. Lord, our heart is to know you who already knows us so well. In Jesus' name, amen.